1: weekend
2: yeah the weekend before the big day so yes and i guess uh, on the financial markets it has wait a sec wait a sec
1: don don you can't do the show with that mask on take that off
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 you're yeah, scaring
1: yeah. the you're scaring he's, the
2: bejeebers out of me he, he's just, I, just
3: I, getting old scott
2: <laughs> i have i have a face for radio scott just ask my wife oh
1: my
3: goodness
2: <laughs> yes and uh honey Topical note, though, yes, there's all sorts of indicators. This whole year has been kind of driven with inflation fears. And really, it, it's it, you know carryover from last year, which has been driving the interest rates. And, you know, it's a scary environment, and pun intended. So, yes, we're, we're definitely, there's some uneasiness, as we talked uh, a few weeks ago with uh, Philip Peterson. And, you know, often that's opportunities. But based on that, there's always these, you know, go-to's or myths and all these kinds of sayings that people say, this is what happens at the end of the day. Are they really true? I think Mitch has got something to say about that.
3: <laughs> well, every industry has lots of myths and theories that may have made sense at one point, or maybe they didn't make sense. And they just, they just rhymed it. They just rhymed and sound cool. So people would start to believe they're accurate and true financial planning. The, the industry is no stranger to have lots of sayings. So earlier this year, there's sell in May and go away. And then there are, there are a bunch more that come throughout the year as well. And they don't really apply as they used to back in the day as the environments, they're constantly changing and the economy's changing. Look at the last few years, how rapidly it's changed up and down just in interest rates alone, uh, as well as inflation. So there are many myths in financial planning. And the first myth I wanted to go through is 100 minus your age is how much money you should have in stocks. This may be one of the most well-known rule of thumb in financial planning. It is, it's is—it's one that I have heard many times, but it's such a blanket statement that just it doesn't do much good. It is, it's great that it does at least say to have some stocks and to diversify, but not to be too exposed to all have volatile assets. That would be your stock portfolio portion. And the base of this theory is basically that as you get older, you should be reducing volatility by moving your equity portion into fixed income because you're one year closer to retirement. And when you're retired, you should not have much volatility because you're living off that fixed income that you've been growing that whole time. And they're basically saying that it's too risky to have that stock portion. But so this is a blanket statement because, I mean, there are many people who retire that they have a... A, a defined benefit pension, and they're getting $3,000 a month, possibly starting at age 65. And so that's basically like a large fixed income portion. It's guaranteed income. And so if you were to add that to the allocation of your investment portfolio, that's a large sliver um, of your pie. So it could be worth a lot. If you uh, if you had $500,000 in investments between RSPs and TFSAs, as well as this, as a pension plan, um, they basically have $1.4 million and of that $900,000 that's guaranteed as an annuity from your defined benefit pension plan, if you're getting $3,000 a month starting at 65. So, to say that this person should be moving their equities into fixed income would be a complete blanket statement and it would debunk that this myth uh, should be moving their uh, fixed income, their stocks into fixed income. So it's definitely not the way to optimize your growth, your portfolio and maximize your potential uh, when someone has a pension plan like that. Myth number two here is... Just, th- yeah. And just, just a second that, Mitch, um, and, you know, it's kind of interesting. This is one that, uh, you know,
2: it has gone and it's been ingrained in people that, yes, I'm getting older. I have to kind of taper back the equity side of my portfolio. And it's kind of interesting. Just a couple of weeks ago, I met with a client and I told her, you should go talk to a lot of my clients because she realizes at age 84, that her money is probably not going to be for her. She will not be running out of money. She has a defined benefit plan from her uh, deceased husband, and she's basically living off between Old Age Security Canada Pension Plan and the defined benefit plan and a little bit of RIF income. At the end of the day, she's not really needing a lot of her investments at this stage. And so she, she said, I'm really investing this for my kids. So how should we be investing it? And not looking at her age, but rather the kid's age. And very common sense approach. And it's it was refreshing to hear.
1: Wow, that uh, is completely different, isn't it? Boy, that that's interesting.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've run into that myself a few times, actually, too. And I mean, they're not going to be using the money. So why should they be playing it uh, completely with fixed income and using that blanket statement of uh age age minus that for fixed income when really you're saving for someone your kid could be in their 40s and 50s and they have 40 50 years to to invest so why should they be being so safe when they can afford the volatility because it's going to their kids so that's that's a great point uh i for sure i've come across that a few times as well uh myth number two though and this one i actually So someone on our team was mentioning that auto dealers are actually giving out 0% loans. And so I found that this one was pretty interesting that auto dealers give you the best rate on a loan. And often car buyers believe that when they finance a purchase through the dealership, the dealer is getting the best rate available for them. This may be true sometimes, but it isn't always. Uh, What consumers may not know and what dealers almost never tell them is that the dealer is getting paid by the lender to give them their business and is often structured around how high the interest rate is. Dealers, therefore, can have an incentive to change to charge higher interest rate because they'll also be making more money. Uh, consumers are often going to be better off to go to their bank or rate shop before they actually dive in and buy that car because it is a large purchase and the the difference of an interest rate could be hundreds or thousands of dollars from the amortization from when you buy that car to when it's fully paid off. So making sure that you are rate shopping and not just assuming that that car dealership is going to get you the best rate on your loan. So that is a that is second myth that I'd like to announce on that one. Uh, myth number three, financial advice Always has your financial advice. Always has your best interests at heart. Uh, there's a misconception that every financial advisor is a fiduciary, and that's, that's technically not true. Uh, fiduciary has a legal duty to put your economic and financial interests ahead of your own, ahead of their own. Uh, lawyers and doctors all have fiduciary duties to their clients, but not all financial intermediaries are fiduciaries. Uh, we we all like to trust and hope that everyone is doing what is best for their clients at all times. And the easiest way to ensure you're working with a fiduciary is to make sure your financial planner is a CFP, a, CF, a certified financial planner. All CFPs have to be fiduciaries. It's, it's just how it is. Um, but not everyone in the financial industry is mandated to have this designation to be a financial planner, technically.
2: So at the end of the day, Mitch, yes, um,
3: all CFPs are fiduciaries, um, but not all planners are CFPs. Correct. Uh, And they can kind of get around that by calling themselves a financial advisor. Um, There's other technicalities that they can get around being a financial planner, but not all CF, not financial planners are CFPs. And not only do you get to know that you're working with someone with your best interests at heart, but you're also making sure that you have someone who has the expertise in comprehensive financial planning, uh, as well as being a fiduciary. So you really want to make sure that you are working with a fiduciary and not just assuming that everyone is going to be one when you are dealing with your finances. Uh, The fourth one here is affluent. People don't need financial plans. Hmm. This one, this one's pretty funny. Sometimes people assume that because they have money, they're also good with their money. And I, I know, Don, you, you come across this quite often. (laughs) Lots of people might have money, but man, it's the more money you have, the more you can spend, the more you can do. Right. You have said that you've
1: said that several times, Don, where if you're really, really good at making money, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're great at with planning money and, and your estate and such.
2: Yes, there's actually you know, a bit of a complacency a that takes place quite often. And they also think they do a great job because they might have a good nest egg, for say, as an example. So let's say they had a million dollars. And I say, well, it's great that you have a million dollars. But, you know, if you had done this differently, it would have been two million dollars. And that would have been tax planning, income splitting, topping up RSPs, what have you. Um, corporate corporations, sprinkling dividends. There's all sorts of different ways. But all these pieces of advice add up and they compound. So a mistake earlier on can compound for 30 years for a higher income person. That makes a mistake even larger in terms of dollar wise.
3: And when someone's making a larger income, I also find you sometimes hear that they're like okay well i'll spend this because i know that i'm going to be making this uh, i'm gosh. making this i'm making this much money well i can delay buying a house now because i'll just make the down payment in my income next year something along those lines i've heard a few times and it's just it's a it's a slippery slope because next thing you know you're buying this this and this and it's 4 years later and you still haven't bought that house so, <laughs> all, all because and then things happen. Jobs yeah. change. Your what about what about change. life?
1: Yeah. What about changes in life, uh, employment, uh, family? I mean, that can change all of this.
3: So yes. just because you're affluent, you have money now and you're making money now doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be forever. Right. So it is important to get proper advice when you are making that money to make the most of it. Uh, holistic financial planning advice guidance focused on savings, debt, insurance, investments, can actually be worth an income boost of more than 7% a year. And Many people at any income level would love to get a 7% income boost per year from getting good advice. Uh, A few things that Don just mentioned is where where does this gain come from? Well, it comes from eliminating costly mistakes and taking advantage of guaranteed wins with your finances. So doing proper planning when it comes to taking your CPP, taking OAS, how much should you put in RSPs when you're working, how much should you take out of RIFs? when you're retired and you have to create that retirement paycheck to make sure you're in between certain tax brackets, writing off your advisory fees on non-registered investments. These are guaranteed planning uh, strategies that we put into place and all of these put into together annually can create a 7% boost on your income. So that is a a huge mistake that people make is assuming that people who are making money don't necessarily need uh, a financial planner. And the last myth here is that stocks are risky. So to say stocks are risky is is a complete blanket statement. It's it's like saying that ice is cold. Over time, ice <laughs> I, <laughs> over time ice melts and becomes water, and when boiled, it becomes hot. So stocks can be risky over the short term, and the S and P has lost money about 25% of the time over one year periods going back to 1926. Uh, day to day, the S and P goes goes down about 44% of the time, and it goes up the other 56% of the time. But over a five-year period, the S&P has had positive returns 88% of the time. An investor with with a diversified portfolio of U.S. stocks, Canadian stocks, international and bonds would reduce the risk of losing money over the midterm and long term for sure. So stocks can be risky depending on the timeline that you have. If you have a short timeline, well, yes, stocks are going to be volatile and they're going to be risky. So you have to make sure that you have the right amount of stocks for your short, short goals, medium goals and your long term goals and to make sure that each goal is properly allocated. Uh, in terms of the stock portion. So not all stocks are are risky. um, And definitely don't be putting money into penny stocks, expecting them to to go up because those ones will be risky.
1: (laughs) We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. you are listening to a paid commercial program unless otherwise
0: identified the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.
1: We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. Call them at IG Private Wealth Management 905 972 7420. It's a scary Halloween weekend. And uh, I guess it's a good time to to gauge whether your retirement or all your finances are scary or not. I think <laughs> I, I think it has been a pretty scary year, hasn't
2: it? It has been a little bit scary, and we're. I hope there's some background music to this, Scott. Like the ooh, right. ooh yeah. In the background.
1: We'll get we'll get you get, some get, hoots and hollers. Don't worry. Get okay, the monster. Get the monster,
3: well, get the monster uh, mash going. That's Come right.
2: On. Yeah. All right. Well, worried about retirement. Uh, yes, Canadians are very good at worrying about retirement, which is a good thing. Because they're not worried. If they weren't worried about it, I'd actually be more concerned because they actually think about it. And there's a lot more information, albeit like this show is an example, as an example. But there's, you know, in the papers it's it's more front and center. And you know what? Because there's no as as Mitch was even talking about, you know, defined benefit plans, they're not there. So when we had those before. And 80% of the people say used to have a defined benefit plan and they retired and, and they lived maybe 10 years and then they died. Well, they were fine. They didn't have to plan a lot. They didn't have to put a lot of money away. But now, totally different. So with that in mind, what about now? Are you, is it, are you worried? Well, at the end of the day, you might want to relax a little bit. It's better and more importantly, happier than you may even expect. A lot of surveys have been out, Uh, Bank Montreal has done one recently, and less than half are confident that they will have enough money in this survey, less less than half the um, respondents of a survey for retirement. So right off the get-go, you think, ooh, but people over 55 are less stressed, as it turns out, and Canadian seniors have a far lower poverty rate than younger Canadians, and relative to the world, they... It is amongst the lowest. In fact, um, right now, people over sixty-five are five point six percent of those people over sixty-five are in poverty. People under eighteen are six point four percent in the poverty rate, and people between eighteen and sixty-four are the highest in terms of uh, uh, in Canada um, living in poverty is is eight point two percent. So you kind of, just based on that alone, you're thinking, okay, why are we giving all these discounts to seniors? <laughs> okay, Because they're actually in the lowest in terms of the poverty rate. And it turns out that when they start to collect their old age security and Canada Pension Plan, they can, a lot of people fall off the poverty rate. They actually are now better off in retirement than they are when they, when they were working. So, So then the other end of it saying, well, Will I be poor and miserable? Well, I don't know about the miserable side. Okay, that's kind of up to you. But it turns out it's the exact opposite. They took a poll of 20,000 people in 2018. And it turns out that people over 60 are the happiest they've been. Actually, 70 to be exact, are the happiest they've been since being a teenager. Can you believe that? No. The happiest... (laughs) No, I don't. I don't believe that at all. (laughs) The happiest people were 15 to 19-year-olds. So when you're looking at your kids and they're 15 to 19, they're happy as larks. They have no worries. Life is good. Everything's great. And people over 70, and by the way, they, they score 10 out of 10 on the happiness factor. People over 70, the same. They're back to their teenage years of happiness. In the middle, it was kind of sucked, actually. they It wasn't all that good, okay? Working, grinding out, paying off mortgages, got daycare, trying to save up for a, a family vacation, a reno. And a lot of this is we put on ourselves. We put a certain amount of stress of what we need to be happy in terms of things. Well, when you're 70 or greater, huh, doesn't seem to matter anymore. They're just happy. And they've kind of set the stage. They realize they're not going to be bringing any more money. They don't have to buy things because, well, first of all, they just know they can't afford it or they can afford it. And they seem to come peace with this. So it's absolutely amazing just how happy they were. And it really started right at 60. It, they get happier. And 70 to 80 and 80 and over, it didn't matter. Actually, anything over 70, they're the happiest. So it turns out what really matters in life was the close connections where it become the most important both your kids. So, you know, those that have kids, they become even more important. So, you know what? Don't don't burn your bridges with your kids, as it turns out, because down the road, um, they add to your happiness factor. And And so make sure you have a, a good relationship with your kids. Now, if you don't have kids, um, replace them with some good friends. And it's kind of funny. There's, you know, people come and go, but one person said to me, um, actually on our hockey team, I said, it's, you know, fairly po- prophetic was, you know what, it's hard to make old friends. And I said, you know, absolutely true. You've had these relationships since high school, university, early work years, and they're 30 or four year relationships. Hey, make sure you can you keep those going because they are the ones that make you happiest in retirement also. So at the end of the day, you will likely not be poor or miserable. In fact, you may have your best years once you get into your retirement. Now, how much money do I need? Now, this was always an interesting one. There was a survey way back uh, earlier this year. Uh, Bank Montreal put the survey on. It said the the average Canadian needs $1.7 million. I don't know, Scott, if you uh, remember that that number that came across saying, you know, the average person needs to save about $1.7 No, but I do
1: remember a million. Was that not a key point, but like a few years ago or what have you? Yeah,
2: it probably was, but maybe inflation moved it to 1.7. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no. How do you know that? <laughs> well, basically, it ended up scaring a lot of people. And it's like, holy smokes, 1.7 million. I'm not even close. And so it turns out the average household over 65, including their house, their net worth average in Canada was $815,000, which isn't that much. Now, again, this is a Canadian not a Hamilton, Toronto, GTA number. So, uh, you know, somebody in Winnipeg may not need it. You know, as their house may, their value may have not be nearly as much as it is in the GTA. But that being said, um, you know, it wasn't even a million dollars. And this includes not just investments. This is everything. This is their net worth. Well, once you factor in the 55 to 65 year olds, the average net worth is now just short of 1.2 million. So, if that's the case they're not you know they're still a long stretch away from the 1.7 that you need in in dollars to to retire on so there's so many factors that really come into how much money you need and I know Mitch and I and, and the whole team we talk about this every every day and in, in terms with our clients and certainly on this show as well but what is that what I what's the most important factor first of all we say I need X amount of dollars to to live on the first thing we talk about is how much do you spend? Okay. Your lifestyle is the most important factor in terms of how much money you need to have at retirement. If it turns out that people that live in a lower um, they had a lower income, funny enough, they also need a lower income at retirement. Middle class need less money than a, a higher a wealthier family. So, and as Mitch said in the previous segment. Um, Do, you know, that myth of higher net worth people or higher income people don't need financial planning? Exact opposite. They need it more because now they have to replace a higher income, higher expectations. Do they want to stop being part of a golf course or golf club? Do they want to travel less because they've retired? Absolutely not. They'll probably work so they don't have to stop that lifestyle. So totally different factors. And so how much you spend? or your burn rate of your money is extremely important. Second would be, what kind of pensions do you have? If you have a defined benefit plan, that's a totally different kettle fish than if you don't. And you think about that, you need 1.7 million. Well, your pension isn't even included in that. So I don't know where they got this arbitrary number, 1.7. It's just like they pulled it out of a hat because so many factors that come into what an average person needs to spend. So as you said, rule of thumbs or myths on the previous one there, Mitch, this is again, a bit of a myth. Um, Also, old age security and Canada pension plan, some people kind of diss that. You know, it's not that much, old age security, 600 and some odd dollars a month, 694, I believe it is. Or um, Canada pension plan is about 1306 a month if you've maxed out. And so old age security, if you've been a Canadian for more than 40 years, you get the maximum. That's all you have to do. And now if you as a couple, that could be $8,300 per, um, per spouse. Okay, so just based on that, and then you double that off. And then you look at Canada Pension Plan. Well, that would be, if you've maxed out your Canada Pension Plan, that works out to 15672 per spouse. So if you looked at, just the government programs, and you've had a decent enough income, you've maxed out the Canada Pension Plan. That's rare, by the way. The average person has not maximized it. They had some lower income years, so they're not getting the maximum. But if you did, hypothetically, that would be 15700 approximately. But just the government programs add up to $48,000 a year if you've maxed out your Canada Pension Plan and you've been a Canadian for over 40 years. So then you take a look at what investments you have and kind of that rule of thumb is the 4% rule. So if you take say a 4% rule off your investments, add in your government pensions, that there would be your lifestyle and you kind of work it backwards and say, this is all we can afford. And now what do we cut back? Also a lot of people in retirement, um, you know, don't have debts anymore. So they're not paying a, a certain monthly payment. And that takes a, you know, that that's a, a big key factor. And also, they're not contributing anymore. So, in terms of how much income do you need at retirement, some say, well, you need 70 to 80 percent of your pre um, pre-retirement income. Most are actually finding you only need about 50 to 60 percent. So whatever you're making before, 50 to 60 percent usually is enough because you're not contributing to RSPs anymore. You're not don't have to save anymore, you're not contributing to Canada pension plan anymore, and you're not contributing to Um, EI, employment insurance. Let me ask you a question here, Don,
1: uh, because we often talk, you know, uh, when people are in their earning years and raising families and whatever, it's hard to keep a handle on debt. Sometimes they're not aware of the debt they have, and sometimes it can get ahead of you. But then you said post-retirement, you know, you run down and here's your thing, and then you work backwards, so it is. are people who are now on that fixed income more aware and more conscious of running into debt as opposed to when they were working? Because when you're working, it's like, well, you know, I'll get to it. Whereas now, it's like, I've only got this much. And you're always encouraging people to spend more if they're not.
2: Totally a, di- uh, a different mindset, Scott. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. In terms of all sorts of things from gifts to, say, Christmas gifts to donations to other things that – you know, they'll think twice about. So it does change your lifestyle retirement, but that's a good thing. You're aware of it because, you know, you know, the more you make, the more you spend. Mm -hmm. So, but interesting enough, your lifestyle would not change at all at about 50 to 60% because of all the things you don't have to do anymore. You've just paid off your mortgage. You don't have to pay into EI anymore. You're not paying as much income tax because you're in a lower tax bracket and you get to income split, which is also a huge tax savings between you and your spouse depending on if there was a lower income spouse or not. So lots of factors there. Now, when it comes to how much does a person need to save for retirement, there's so many rules to this one. Right off the get-go, there was always always save 10%. And that seemed to be okay. David Chilton had said that in The Wealthy Barber many, many years ago. You can't go wrong with saving any amount, but 10% might be on the low side because 30, 30 years of a retirement is an awful long time. So then... Others have said, well, 15% from age 35 to 65. Ah, okay, that may work. Certainly better than 10%. But Fidelity had this interesting one. I, I'm, whether it works or not, it's a different factor at all. But at age 30, you should have saved what your annual salary is, one times. By the time you hit 40, you should have saved three times what you make. At age 50, you should have saved six times your salary. By age 60, eight times. And by '67, you should have ten times what your average your annual salary was saved somewhere. Now the problem with this is life gets in the way. There's so many things that get so many factors that happen. This all sounds great on paper. So I like this other rule. It's called the Rule of Thirty, and it saves 30% of your pre-tax income from day one. They say, "Well, that's even harder." Well, they have different. Um, limits on this and factors. Basically what they do, they take three things. They take your mortgage payment, your daycare costs, and your retirement savings. And those three are 30%. So maybe at the beginning, all your money is going to mortgage payments and daycare costs. So therefore you're not saving anything in retirement. And they're not feeling guilty because it's your 30%. But as you're paying down one thing, say now your kids are not in daycare, you now got more to save for retirement. And always keep that 30% on those three areas. That is an excellent plan. But at the end of the day, you know what an excellent plan is? (laughs) Sitting down with a financial planner. Okay. okay. Having a plan? Having a plan. (laughs) These are all great rule of thumbs. Very few people will stick to any of these. It's kind of like a diet or a workout program. Oh, this all sounds good, but it's so much better if you have a personal trainer or somebody to make sure you're doing the right things. And that is what a financial planner, of a CFP particularly, will make sure you'll do the right things. And because of that, you'll have a 50% greater net worth at least and up to a three times greater net worth just because you work with a financial planner. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson.
1: Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Another break here. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at DonFox.net. Call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Halloween weekend edition of and Halloween spending. Is this like, uh, you know, buying three boxes of candy when you really only need one?
3: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Are you handing out the big bars this year, Scott?
1: yeah but i break them in half
3: <laughs> oh okay i mean yeah inflation is high you better do that
1: yeah don <laughs> says i gotta cut back so sorry kitties you only get one yeah. finger from the kit kat today
2: what? yeah, yeah. honestly shrinkflation is is riding strong with with halloween candy the oh, size of things are so small so yeah
3: that's oh, it you yeah. take the kit oh.
1: kat you take the kit kat you split it in half and say sorry kid shrinkflation see you later
3: (laughs) oh man where do you live scott i'm gonna come trick-or-treat at yours (laughs) yeah really gonna have
1: eggs all over the house
3: (laughs) oh but uh anyways these these are american stats but i found them eye-opening uh the halloween spending this year is to reach a record of 12.2 billion dollars which is actually going to exceed pre-pandemic levels uh, total Halloween spending is expected to reach 12.2 billion, which is exceeding last year's record of 10.6 billion. So there's a lot of money in Halloween, and I mean, as as a young individual, um, I didn't realize this growing up. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but according to the National Retail Federation's annual survey conducted. Uh, A record number of people, 73% of people, will participate in uh, Halloween-related activities this year, which is up from 69% last year. Uh, 69% of those celebrating Halloween plan to buy costumes, which is also up from 67% last year, and the highest in the survey's history. So the total spending on costumes is expected to reach a record of $4.1 billion, which is up from 3.6 in 2022. Clearly, the clearly
1: the clearly the pandemic and have not been able to trick or treat for the last few years.
3: It's coming out. Maybe the, is that a reason why we're seeing so much this year? Do you think? Well, it's funny. There's two graphs side by side. The spending slightly dipped, but like the amount of people going out and um, trick or treating and everything dramatically dipped. And then last year it was pretty close to pandemic pre-pandemic levels, and this year it's exceeding. Like but the spending was pretty similar to pre pandemic levels. It wasn't too far off. So it didn't dip as much as the people actually part- participating in Halloween, which is actually pretty interesting to to say there, but uh, there, there's some pretty interesting categories here. So children's costume spending has risen from 2022 to 2023 from 1.2 billion to 1.4 billion, uh, 2.6 million children plan to dress as Spider-Man this year with the movie mm. coming out. Uh, A princess and a ghost and Mario are also popular costumes as they also as Mario had a big movie this year that did very well. The adult costume spending has risen 18% from last year from 1.7 billion to $2 billion in adult costume spending which is just a ton of money on costumes.
1: Don't you find this
3: surprising though, considering how people are really
1: feeling the pinch. I mean, affordability (laughs) issues. I mean, I would say this year, you know, Hey junior, put a bed sheet over your head and cut two holes out and take the pillowcase.
3: Well, that's that's also funny. This, I was thinking the same thing. So the per person spending is up from 102 to $108, which is a, it's a big increase uh, year over year. And 67% plan on buying a costume, which is up from last year. So you'd think with people maybe cash strapped and everything, they might grab that sheet and say, hey, Junior, you're a ghost. But no, they're, they're still spending a record amount of people are going to go out and actually buy costumes. And uh, I mean, I fully expect this year to be a Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey braid <laughs> out there. Everyone's going to be out there in those. Uh, so uh, you're going to see that one a lot. But actually, this one was pretty crazy, too. was pet costumes have remained the same for the last three years, but it rakes in $800 million a year in pet costumes. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's already you got your kids,
2: you got the adults and now you're dressing up your pets too.
3: Yeah, and the okay. top three the top 3 costumes for your pets are 11% pumpkin, 7% hot dog and 4% bat. So people bat. <laughs> people are spending bat. 800 million dollars on dressing their pets up hey the hot hot dog one i can definitely see yeah yeah yeah
2: but
1: But, you you know at the end of the day hey how about the dog just goes out as a dog
3: no no if you're going out like taylor swift your dog's going out like a pumpkin 80 million dollars are spent on your grading your dog to look like a pumpkin i gotta say i went out of my condo yesterday and the festivities are, are already around as there was a dog dressed up as a unicorn so people around my area are spending money on their dog on their costumes or that maybe that was a daily thing it was attached to their leash I'm not sure. I wonder if any
1: I wonder if anybody
2: dresses their dog as a cat.
3: That's that'd be ironic, wouldn't it? That's yeah. cruel. That's just cruel, isn't it? Yes, That's that is.
2: And if they saw themselves in the mirror what would they do? Yeah. <laughs> 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 so right. unbelievable, a lot of money spent and yes, uh you know what? You look at the so-called soft landing or recession and all these things that every day kind of haunt us in terms of numbers, and yet
3: no seems to sh- no shortage on spending on Halloween. Nope, the spending carries on. Halloween must be must go this year. All right, we are planning your
1: financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here, Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905 972 7420. Another quick break. You are listening
0: to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.
1: We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson, Don Fox, and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at DonFox.net. Call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905 972 74 Two zero. All right. I love it on your Halloween show. You do this every year. How much dead celebrities are worth uh after they leave us? And there's some pretty interesting numbers
2: this year. It's always, and they change a little bit each each year. And I know everybody's been waiting for this. And here we go again. The <laughs> Forbes annual dead celebrities income. This is not net worth. This is just income for the year. No oh, wow. So and so right up and it's the top 13, as you would think. And so, therefore, right at the very bottom this year are two Beatles. And that would be John Lennon and George Harrison. And this is simply, they just continue to get about $20 million. Uh, First of all, the number was, do uh, it was about, sorry, $12 million last year is what they both earned in generally just music rights. So, a million a month. So, not so bad. Coming in. At number twelve spot was Juan Gabriel. He's one of the most prolific Mexican composers and singers in history. I'm not a big, fam- I'm not familiar with him. Maybe Scott, you are a little bit, but he's got 1,800 songs in his lifetime, and he ended up earning $16 million last year um, through his catalog of music. Now, what's kind of interesting, all through the years, these artists have been really saying, "I want to own my music." And now it's it's gone full circle. So what you're seeing this year is they want to they want they're now saying, okay, I want to do some tax planning and estate planning, and now they're selling their intellectual property back to companies. Mm -hmm. And so these royalty companies are now buying their their works and they're getting paid to own these own these outright. And now they're getting, but in the meantime, these artists are getting one big giant check, and that's making them jump up dramatically. And You'll see that through these numbers here. Now, this this person has been part of this all the way through, and it is Charles Schultz. Mm. And it's the great pumpkin, and it's a, a common one, and also the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, the Charlie Brown Christmas, and they and he earned 23 or the state earned 23 million last year. Mm. Now, here's one here, Scott, you may be familiar with Jeff. Piccaro. Uh he Toto. Tr- you got it. Yes. Yeah, I yeah, thought that would yeah. be right in your go yep. zone. This is right in the 80s rock outfit. Toto, unfortunately, he passed away, but he was also a part of a lot of things. Um, he, he helped co-write the platinum certified song, Africa, Yeah, uh, with Quincy Jones. He, was, he kept the beat going and best-selling album of all time. He was part of uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller and collaborated yeah. with others such as Steely Dan, Eric Clapton, Clapton, Paul McCartney, Bruce Spring- Springsteen, and his publishing and recording royalties were snapped up by a company, and he brought in $24 million last year.
1: Yeah, he was a big studio musician, uh, musician as was all of Toto, and then they just got together and formed a band, and boom, the rest is history. Yeah, Wow, a great
2: band, too. Great yeah, and yeah. fantastic. Now, on, on the theme of, uh, you know, uh, there's Charles Schultz, but also, not far behind or actually ahead was Dr. Seuss mm. and he died in cancer back in 91, 1991. And he brought in $25 million last year. And, you know, they just keep going going and alongside Netflix deals and merchandising keeps that going. So there's not often you see this and I'm sure that will be part of the Halloween costumes always is, is some of his famous um, characters. Mm-hmm. Then you go down the a, a Canadian now is making the, the list and you would probably know this person quite well, as everybody does, wrote the very well-known song, Hallelujah.
1: Oh, and that would be uh, Leonard, Leonard Cohen. Co- Leonard Cohen, yeah.
2: Right. $32 million last year he pulled in. And this person will always be in, in the top. This year, though, fell, fell down the ranks. He, he has been in the top number one spot many times since his death, June 25th of 2009, at the age of 50. Um, that would be Michael Jackson. And he brought in $55 million, his state did last year, $55 million. And so you're thinking, it is absolutely a cash cow. His, his money is just constantly, these are just annual amounts that just keep coming in from streaming rights. So close behind was James Brown. Everybody knows him, $75 million. Elvis Presley, always in the top uh in, in terms of number five that's from 1977 at the age of 42 he died he brought in in his estate 100 million dollars and there's a few others uh david bowie 110 million and you know just a ton of a ton of dough and unfortunately he died uh, back in 2016 and then kobe bryan he had a company body armor that was pawed up by coca-cola and they bought up, and his share of this sale worked out to 250 million dollars. And finally, number one, J.R.R. Tolkien. Okay, I'm not too sure who this person was until I read it, and that was uh, the one that wrote on on what? Uh, oh, what was the name of that book? Anyway, um, oh. I can't come up with that book's name here, but Green anyway. Eggs and Ham. It was Green <laughs> Eggs and Ham. No, it was oh, The Ring and all this. Uh, I can't Lord of can't the Rings. Lord yes, of the Rings. thank you. There you go, Lord of the Rings. Well, he sold this Middle Earth for hundred million, sorry, five hundred million dollars. <laughs> five hundred wow. million dollars he made last year. So that is the top thirteen for twenty twenty two. There you have it.
1: And we hope everybody has a uh, safe and happy Halloween and uh, enjoys themselves and don't eat too much candy when it does get home. All right, we've been planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson, Don Fox, Mitch Fox here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Another spooky show, gentlemen. Thanks so much.